I would encourage you know business owners that are serious about their exits to dive in and complete their planning with the goal of taking a lifestyle business and converting it into a professionally managed business. Accelerate those goals because this is a great year to really conduct that actual M&A exit. Welcome to the Business Owner Transition with Mike Quinlan, where we bring you content to help you transition your business on your terms. Hey, it's Mike Quinlan again, and welcome back to the Business Owner Transition Podcast. Last episode, we talked about the outlook for 2022. And we looked at it across three different perspectives. We looked at the economy, we looked at M&A activity, and also we looked at owner confidence throughout 2022. So 2022 is looking like a great year for M&A transactions. There've been several surveys out and they're all reporting that M&A professionals and private equity firms are expecting Big time deal volume is similar to what it was last year, potentially even better than last year. And all of that has to do with business recovering from the COVID-19 pandemic and then also the recovery of the economy. Examples of some of these surveys include the Grant Thornton survey of 156 different deal makers, and then also the Citibank survey of 400 U.S. middle market CEOs, CFOs, and private equity principals. Both of these surveys suggest deal volumes will be at or the same as last year, with 87% of Citibank respondents anticipating these volumes. 86% of those respondents say valuations are going to be stable or potentially increase. Some interesting things that also were reflected in the Citibank survey were sectors with highest probability of positive change in company valuation included healthcare, technology, media, and telecom, and then also the consumer sector showed increases as well. Now, for those of you out there thinking about, okay, I'm going to sell my business and what are some of the drivers that cause that? In the Citibank survey, the number one thing was that no succession planning had been done and they're looking for new leadership. Another critical aspect of this was owner fatigue. There's a lot of owners out there that, uh, as we spoke about in our last episode, are tired of COVID, they're tired of dealing with labor and supply shortages, and they're just ready to move on. So today I've got Don Brivaldo of Brivaldo Capital Advisors. Brivaldo Capital Advisors is a boutique Atlanta-based M&A firm and corporate finance advisory firm. They provide independent economic and financial advice and execution services for lower middle market companies. And we're going to talk about the definition of that here in just a second. But uh, 10 to $300 million of revenue areas that Don and his team typically works with. The company offers a full range of transaction advisory services, guiding clients through sell-side transactions, growth through acquisition, debt restructuring, and corporate recapitalization. Don is an instructor at the Business Owner Transition Academy, helping students gain insights on transaction-related factors, contributing to owners joining. 
elite 3%, by maximizing transaction value on their terms and without regret. So, Don, welcome to the show today. I appreciate you coming in. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me back. It's always good to to see you and contribute and uh, try and help some business owners out there. Well, cool. So what we're going to kind of focus on here today is we've got all this data that's come from, you know, I've only mentioned two surveys, but there's going to be, there's a ton of them out there right now. I'm sure you get all of these things, but let's take this national data and try to bring it to boots on the ground with what you do here, primarily in the Southeastern region of the United States. So in your view, what does the M&A environment look like for, let's, let's call it, you know, the 10 to $100 million company? Yeah, that's perfect. And I would say that's, uh, that's the perfect strike zone that, that we enjoy working in, Mike. And so it, it is often a little bit difficult to kind of take the national and international stats and, and relay them back to um, the real-world sandbox that you and I uh, live and work and play in and, and love. Um, and so what I would say is let's start by, again, recapping last year. By all accounts, last year is a, is a record setter, right? There, there is, according to S&P, capital IQ, go ahead and add another survey, uh, but they, they are one of the gold standards out there. Their, their transaction tape is in. It includes a lot of large public company transactions, but $2.5 trillion worth of M&A was conducted last year. In addition to that, uh, the, the number of transactions stood at 23,720, another record. The, the previous high for both of these metrics was in 2015. So again, 2021 was a watershed year. And when we think back, uh, at what drove a lot of that activity. Again, you know, great stock market, cash-rich environment, public companies making great money. Um, and this this is all, you know, post kind of COVID still slash in COVID, but the economy didn't tremendously, tremendously well. And because of that, companies had money to spend. Another big driver was the tax boogeyman. And, um, and that hurricane um, really lasted all the way up until November, and it drove a lot of private business owners, the sort of business owners that you and I work with, to really start to contemplate their succession planning, um, to consider their exit strategies. And some of them, you know, opted and acted and were prepared to act on those strategies, and, and that drove a lot of the M&A. So, so the question mark is, What's, what's in store for 2022? And I, I set that backdrop to say that there was a significant amount of work in lower middle market underway that did not transact by the end of last year. Part of it was you know, the tax um, overhang or implications of, of tax reform and higher taxes all went away when Congress couldn't agree to, to move forward on that front. By all accounts that I've heard, um, it's an election year, so the likelihood of that coming back is is lower, I would think, but I'm never going to say not impossible. I'm just going to say that's probably not the driving force. But because all the transactions did not happen last year, there's a significant amount of holdover work that, that quality firms and advisors like our shop 
um, have held over and are continuing to work on completing those transactions right now. And so I expect this to be a very strong first quarter. Uh, it may not rival last year's first quarter, but it'll be an, 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 you know, a historically strong first quarter. And it'll shape to set the, the tone for another great M&A year. Uh, in addition to that, it's exactly what we're seeing on the ground, right? We've got holdover work. But in addition to that, there's been a number of companies that were a little bit late to the party last year. They couldn't get in line to work with an advisor. There's only so many professionals in the deal community that can handle a mad rush to, to try and, and handle uh, large demand to exit. And so um, we're seeing a very strong pipeline of companies uh, uh, to work with that, that is certainly even stronger than where we were last year. Uh, I think that um, our doing some informal polls, that's what a lot of lower middle market advisory shops are seeing as well. And so with that, I asked myself, well, what conditions have changed to, to change the market? Well, nothing. The public companies still have a bunch of money and are trying to grow through acquisition for various reasons. Private equity groups still have a record amount of cash to invest. That, that virtuous cycle continues. Um, both of them are competing with a low cost of capital debt markets um, being low for, for present. Uh, that means that um, I don't see any conditions that'll, that exist now to change valuations, which are at strong historic highs. However, when I try and look out later this year, I think all of your listeners are probably aware that the Fed is contemplating and, and even broadcasting, you know, two to three rate increases this year. And as we get into a rising interest rate environment, debt will cost more. And it's pretty elementary to understand that if debt costs more, you probably can't get as much of it as as you had in the past to put into a transaction. Um, ultimately, does that mean valuations will change this year? Probably not, but over time as debt becomes more expensive, um, it will start to have some pressure, downward pressure on valuations. And it could have a little bit of a cooling effect as we really get into uh, the tail end of the year. But all of that is prognosticating. Right now, uh, things are good. Uh, the phone's ringing off the hook, both in terms of, of buyers seeking great deals to, to look at. Um, you know, what I hear is that everything's overpriced and trying to find good companies in the midst of, of all of this is, is difficult. But, uh, you know, it's a, it's a good problem to have to be a seller right now because you have an overabundance of, of buyers that, that really would uh, pay up for and pay a premium for a good company. So, so you mentioned a lot of stuff there, and uh, I'm going to ask you a lot more questions about all of that. So great intro. So you just said valuations, you know, people are complaining about having to pay too much and all that kind of stuff. And one of the surveys I read talked about that companies believe it's a seller's market and that the private equity folks, they want to say that it's evenly split between a seller and buyer's market. It is a seller's market for really good companies. But like it always is, those companies that haven't fully prepared may not be at the top of their valuation range 
Yeah, it's a little easier to buy those companies and do it on terms that are more favorable for those private equity companies. Would you agree with that or what do you see in there? Well, you know, yes and no. Um, I'm going to try and nuance this a little bit, my answer. What I would say is that when you get into a frothy seller's market, everything weighted in favor of a seller, what you can get, Mike, is where in less uh, generous economic times and in less favorable M&A times, you have a marginal business. You're not selling it at any price. Nobody wants it. Right. You're in a market like we're in today, and even a business that's less glamorous or even a business that cut all the corners and played hooky from going to your classes and taking your advice can probably be sold. The question is, are they going to maximize value? And there are certainly private equity groups that their sole existence is to find situations where there's value to be had. A great example, I had a gentleman who's sitting where you are right now visit us yesterday with a, an incredible brand name fund, but they, they are no, known for looking for special situations where, um, you know, they bought a $25 million EBITDA business. And because of the nature of that business, just the industry itself, a project-based revenue stream that could go away tomorrow, you know, they paid what I would consider to be a fairly low multiple at five to six times for that kind of cash flow. You, you have a $25 million business and it's, it's got repeat customers that uh, can be counted on and, and you're probably talking greater than 10x uh, in, in a different industry group. So, you know, there's a flavor of buyer out there for everyone, but I would tell you that what he commented on is finding those, what they consider to be gems, what they're looking for is harder and harder and harder in today's environment. Yeah. So there are a number of questions actually that come out of that as well. But let's talk about the elite exit for a second, right? You, you know that we talk about the fact that the elite 3%, right? All of those business owners, anybody that starts a business, by the time they get down to actually being able to sell it and being able to maximize value, on their terms, and then most importantly, without regretting the decisions that they've made, it's only about 3% of businesses, right? I would so, agree with that. Yeah, and it's extraordinarily difficult. It is not an easy button issue, and I'm sure you've had this conversation as, as well as I have, but, but many people I talk to think that they're just gonna sell their business whenever they wanna sell their business, and it's not gonna be a problem. That is unfortunately the very common um, misconception that many people get that we meet right off the bat. And, it, and in, you know, some of them through education and, and being prepared to listen to not only us, but other advisors can, can start to understand that and, and others never overcome it. But yes, um, you know, I am fortunate that, that we have, have been able to attract that 3% at least the 10% the, the that are willing to start listening to us to, to eventually become 3%. Right. Well, so that's what the Academy is about. We both uh, try to get those people into that 3%. And there's 
areas of businesses that drive value, right? We talk about the I'm good checklist, but right now in, and you mentioned the guy sitting in my seat here that's looking at special situations, right? Um, what are the you know, what are the key components out there, those key value components that people are, are really looking for right now? I mean, there's, what, two-plus trillion dollars worth of liquidity sitting around to be deployed, and uh, these companies are having a hard time finding good quality companies. But, uh, you know, what are those key value drivers that they're looking at when, when they're selecting a company, besides cash flow, obviously? Sure. Well, you know, I think first to, to keep in mind, you know, I tend to bifurcate the universe into what I call financial sponsors, private equity groups, family offices, and other various forms thereof, or industry participants and strategic buyers. And so, I, you know, in general, everybody's looking for the metrics that make a good business a good business. But I, I want people to understand that there's some generalities that, you know, are kind of like, you know, private equity playbook 101 in terms of what they tend to look for. And the, the first business case I'll make is when they're considering buying what's called a platform investment, okay? A platform investment is when they make the first investment in a particular industry that that fund has made, either in a long time or ever. And if that is the case, they're going to be a lot more critical uh, and spend a little bit more time really making sure that it's a it's an industry that that fits with the investment thesis they have in mind um, it's also going to require a certain size business at a minimum to be considered for that and um, you know then from there they're going to be looking for businesses that have a diversified revenue stream no major customer concentrations or very few if any, customer concentrations. If there's a massive customer concentration, you will not be considered as a platform investment. The only alternative to that would be if there were very long-term contracts that were ironclad that would keep your customers in place, which is never the case. Um, they're going to look for recurring revenues or at the very least, repeat revenues. Many, if they have this perfect checklist in mind, are going to look for um, what they would consider to be higher margins, higher gross margins. Um, some firms, of course, will specialize in lower margin businesses, but on the whole, they're looking for higher margin businesses. Most lower middle market private equity funds want to start looking at a business that's at least $5 million in EBITDA for a platform, if not seven or eight. But, um, you know, the reason for that, I think, is just the general thoughts that a $5 million EBITDA plus business has enough profitability to afford to have a, a management team, to have invested in systems. Those are some of the things that, that are also key. You need to have a management team. So could there be a hole in the management team? Let's say the owner wears two hats. Yes, you can get away with that. doesn't mean we, we shouldn't work to mitigate that. But when the owner is wearing every hat and um, their family member is serving as the CFO, but yet is really only qualified to be the bookkeeper, that is not what they're looking for. Of course, some firms you know, would look at it as a big plus to see some intellectual property, i.e. some software or an invention or a patent. 
some sort of, of intellectual property associated with the company. And of course, almost many, many private equity groups are looking for what I would call low capital expenditure requirement businesses or asset light businesses is the neat little term that everybody's looking for. Um, I would add to that, <laughs> in the last 10 years at least, there has been this tremendous shift in, in terms of private equity thinking, and most firms are out there looking for what's called companies that would fit with a buy and build strategy. So remember that phrase, buy and build. Most of the private equity groups, that's the majority of how they add value in addition to the financial engineering that they pull off. And um, if you happen to be in a business that industry that's highly fragmented and you're one of the big players, you would represent a great platform that they could do a buy and build strategy. And then that evolves into my second comment on private equity, which is if you are not the platform, but instead the add-on, then you can throw out a lot of what I just said because they'll buy you as a smaller company and you can have some of the blemishes and get away with it. And then the second group of buyers um, are industry and, and strategic acquirers. And I would say all of the above that I just said are huge pluses, but many of them you know, are going to understand your business, especially if um, if you're competitors or let's say you're not direct competitors, but in different marketplaces, they're going to understand your business. So, you know, why are, are they good buyers and what are they looking for? Those types of buyers, you know, could be looking for synergies, cost cutting opportunities, cross selling opportunities, um, geographic expansion opportunities, you name it. They're trying to make one plus one equal four. And, um, you know, they're, they're an exciting type of buyer that can, if forced, pay a premium for a business. And, of course, I do not want to, to leave out as well, you know, a strategic buyer may be acquiring a business that they're unfamiliar with because their markets are mature and they want to find a growth a growth company that brings, you know, a unique opportunity to grow their business. They could be buying technology. There's a million different reasons why they do what they do, but every one that I just mentioned is certainly a, a case that we've seen in the last three years as to why a strategic becomes interested in bidding on an acquisition. So I know I said a lot there, and uh, I'm sure you probably have a, a few questions on that. If I distill all of the great words that you just put out there into a few, right? I look at it as two major components. One is the value drivers to the company itself, right? And thank you very much because you just hit every element of the I'm good checklist, right? So, uh, you know, the I is increasing cash flow and a plan to continue increasing cash flow. The M is institutionalizing your management team. The G is top line growth, right? So revenue growth and plans to increase that. O for optimizing financial statements, getting those margins right, getting all that stuff, your airplane out of the business and all the rest of it, right? The second O is operations and documentation of operational processes and procedures. And man, that's a huge one, right? Because it can be compliance with ERISA, it can be compliance with DOL, it could be 
supplier and vendor relationships, right? It's all of those different things that people need to know how to run your business. Uh, and then the last one, of course, is the diversification of the customer base, right? Geographic diversification, lines of business diversification, overall revenue diversification. So that is the business itself. That's the core thing. Those are all the things that you as a business owner can control. What you can't control, but you can be aware of, is the strategic piece of why companies might buy you, right? Identifying who that universe of buyers might be prior to even selling your business, right? Understanding what they might be buying you for. Are they buying you for defensive reasons? Are they buying you for horizontal or vertical integration? Are they a PE company that's out there going to platform you because your industry is turning into a roll-up type scenario? Right, so internal and external strategic drivers that that can help you maximize that value of your business. Agreed, and and I would say um, having familiarity in general with the types of buyers and being cognizant of what is occurring in your industry are, you know, fundamentals that we want our owners to be aware of. And in particular, our technology owners, right? I mean, you know, there's plenty of young guns that we encounter that are, they're actually building a business with an intention to sell and an intention to sell usually to a certain buyer, you know, to a Google or Facebook or a Microsoft, you know, um, and, and with that, um, they need to understand what those companies want to buy, right? What is the technology, what is the problem that they're solving for those companies? So those are special cases, but in general, I couldn't agree more. Having familiarity with, with what buyers uh, in general find attractive is helpful. Um, and then I would add, you know, working with a professional advisor. To, to be able to give you a heads up on what we're seeing in the market, in your industry in particular. Um, because, you know, if we find out early enough what an owner's true goals are and what are the things that drive them, it would allow us to be able to offer advice on how to prepare the business to be more attractive to a certain kind of buyer. Right. So we were talking a little bit earlier before we went on about how important it is to get uh, a M&A professional involved early in the planning process. And one of the things, we talk about a lead exit, right? One is maximizing value. Two is getting the terms that you want. And preparing and making sure that your advisory team truly understands what those terms are. So for example, you may not want to be in your business. You may want to turn the keys over and go. On the other hand, you may want to be in it for five years, get another bite at the apple in this new growing enterprise. But if your advisory team doesn't understand what those objectives are, then they're going to bring you the wrong kind of buyers. You're going to go through a process that's going to take a lot longer potentially than it should, right? And you and I recently have, have seen a process where you had indications of interest in the hundred and then distilled it down to uh, 
LOIs of you know 15 or 20 or so, and then throughout that whole process, having to talk with the owner about the merits of these various documents and offers and indications. And some of those people are, are you don't want to bring those buyers to the table that you have, know have no chance of matching the real objectives of the seller. That's right. And a couple of comments there because, you know, uh, both you and I were catching up and, and thinking about the, the, the uh, incredible outcome we had for our mutual clients on that particular transaction. You know, look, it, the work that we do on the front end can save a lot of time and, and heartache and, um, and really investment uh, when we actually execute on a sale process. But that said, there is a journey, right? There's a learning journey that even occurs in a professional sales process. And, you know, it can be fun for, for us to be charged with, well, look, all I care about is the maximum value. Uh, therefore, I, you know, we suggest selling to a strategic industry competitor. Uh, and, you know, we do, and they get the maximum price and the business goes away. And that's okay. Uh, but what, to me, in terms of, of having a little variety and, and, and learning along with our clients is diversity. Hey, I want you to explore strategic options. I'd like to know what a private equity deal for our company and for me personally, what that's going, actually going to entail. What's it going to look like and what would they be like as partners? And hey, uh, yeah, it'd be great to have a strategic premium offer for my business. But what does that mean? Am I actually going to have to continue working there? Or um, can I ride off into the sunset right away? Or, you know, are my people and my culture really going to be a fit with these folks? Um, you know, will my business continue to survive? You can't answer those questions from a computer screen. You can only do that through running a professional sales process and controlling it and controlling the confidentiality. Um, but but having an opportunity uh, to evaluate that. Yeah, it's a really good point. In the early on in our discussions with clients and with students, we explore the three big questions, right? Which is how much money do you need to get from your transaction? And the sub part of that is you know, how much money do you have? What's the financial planning? How much? What are your assets outside of your company? But the second part of that question is, how much is your company worth? And you and I probably have both seen that that owners tend to overestimate the value of their company by a large percentage. Uh, but the second question is, who do we want to sell it to? And oftentimes that question is difficult to answer and changes because they may say, I want to sell to an employee. And as you start having conversations around the risks that are associated with selling to a family member or selling to an employee, and then start talking about the related risks of selling to a third party, right? And the potential for monetization of the company in a, in a more expeditious manner. Um, sometimes they decide that, hey, you know what? I don't really want to stay around and train my people because I haven't done it. And if you're telling me that it's a long timeline, that maybe doesn't match with 
question number three, which is when do I want to sell it? And so along that conversation goes the risks and the rewards of selling to different types of third-party buyers. What might be involved? How long do I might need to stay? What's the benefit of me saying? Most owners really don't understand all of those things. And part of what we do as a team is we make them aware of all of these different options. And then sometimes they just have to live it for a little while. So let's pivot for a second and talk about competition in the marketplace now. I read a recent article. It talked about private equity companies. They have a lot of money that they need to deploy. They are having a hard time sourcing deals and closing deals. And it was talking about the fact that when they do find one of those gems, those that I'm Good Checklist is done, they've got a good strategic reason that they're buying the company for the platform it or what other reason they might use, they've got some pressure on them to make, go ahead and make a good offer fast and get the deal closed as quickly as possible. Are you seeing that actually in the, on the battlefield? Are you seeing that same thing? <laughs> well, yes and no. Again, I'm going to sound like an economist before this is all over. On the one hand, um, middle market size transactions, absolutely. What does that mean, a middle market company? It's a very large transaction. It's at, usually outside the space that we advise on. Um, but that company is big enough to have a complete management team, audited financials, the whole nine yards. Well, they can streamline a diligence process. A lower middle market company, on the other hand, if I take the premise that they've done the I am good checklist, they, they have taken the advice to heart, and they have spent a couple of years preparing for a sale, because I have yet to encounter a lower middle market business that was perfect and needed to do nothing in order to maximize the value of their business. I have yet to find one, but let's assume that they did all that. I would agree that private equity is streamlining the diligence process to be competitive. And you say competitive against who? Well, against a strategic buyer? Um, yeah. I can go for that. That's one of their selling points, is they can move quickly. That doesn't mean that there are not groups out there, and I think that there are more than a few groups out there that, in my um, experience, will dangle a very large number out there to capture a deal, and then their sole objective is once they have captured the deal in exclusivity to whittle down the valuation based on their due diligence process, whether that's a fast due diligence process or a short due diligence process. And so my advice is to those business owners that you know, choose to uh, work on a transaction alone, right? They're not working with advisors and they have forgotten what needs to work into that I am good checklist or somewhere right after it, competition. Competition is the key to maximizing value and minimizing transaction execution risk. And when you talk about competition, what you mean is putting the company into a competitive environment, into an auction environment. It, it is. But when I say auction, some people have the the impression that that needs to be a hundred people looking at it and this and that and the other. I mean, competition could be three 
key strategic buyers that you've worked with an advisor that knows how to tee up the conversations with them to let them know that that this company is going to sell to the right partner at the highest valuation and you will have to compete. Many people will forget that and start a conversation with what they view as a as a, a competitor or a friendly competitor or you know, just someone that they've respected for many, many, many years in business and um, mistake that admiration for uh, I'm going to suddenly get everything I wanted uh, out of someone who the moment they recognize that they have what's called a proprietary transaction is immediately going to, to, to change the game. Um, and so, you know, your question really centered around due diligence and, and, and what is happening there. Um, again, private equity can streamline that process, but the modern diligence process for any buyer, and especially private equity, is incredibly uh, detailed. It's like, I mean, I would certainly say it's on par with getting a lobotomy. It is a lot more detailed than when I bought businesses in the late 90s for a publicly traded company. And even companies that are prepared, it takes time to move through that. Um, I can tell you that uh, when I try and contrast that to strategic buyers, uh, you and I both uh, have another client in common where we got to witness, witness this. You would think that a big industry public company buyer uh, could move quickly, yet they were probably the slowest buyer I've ever seen in due diligence, simply because they were big and bureaucratic and in, their, in, in all honesty and, and recognizing this, they were making an acquisition in a new market that they had never had experience in. Um, but you know what? They paid us for it. They paid us for the trouble, right? We got the strategic premium out of them. So that's, that's certainly a, a good consolation prize for a pretty difficult due diligence process. You've heard me say this. Uh, one of the staples of the academy is that we talk to students and then as we're doing consulting work with clients, we talk to them about going into the post-LOI, going into that due diligence process. We want them to go into the LOI at the high end of their valuation range and then be able to defend that through due diligence. And one of the things that I would compliment you on, and I really see as a problem in the, with, with sellers, is when they try to go their own, they have a really hard time sometimes defending that, that price in, that went through the LOI. Having a M&A professional on your team that can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with what typically is a larger buyer, a more sophisticated buyer sometimes, makes it really difficult for a single owner or a partnership to be able to speak a language that they maybe are not prepared to speak. And uh, sometimes that valuation can deteriorate as you go through due diligence and go into that purchase agreement negotiation. And then there's the emotion that is associated with all of this. So having a experienced advisor on your team who uh, doesn't carry the same level of emotion as the seller does is critical to, again, maximizing value, but also 
getting the terms that you want out of the deal. So we're hopefully wrapping up COVID here. We've been through a rough couple of years. What kind of deal terms are you seeing that are different now than maybe were different or that there existed prior to COVID? Right. And and by the way, I totally agree with, with all the comments you just made in, in terms of, of being ready and, and, and making it through and, and plus having having the advisors that are knowledgeable. In terms of, of um, deal points and, and uh, things that have changed in the environment as, as far as transaction structure, I think this was probably a little bit more prevalent last year. I, I still expect it to be the case this year. When we're talking about companies that either were unfavorably hurt by COVID or um, they received what's called a COVID bump, they, they've done very well. And there are industries that, that fall into that category. In either case, there has been more of an introduction of earnouts that are being used to bridge the gap between, you know, where a business was prior to COVID and then the actual results that have occurred up until the point where, where, a, tran- where a sale process is ongoing. And um, there's often a valuation gap there and, and investment bankers are doing their best to sell on the forecast going forward. As the business recovers, this is what you're buying. Um, but there's that dynamic of, okay, well, if that's what we're buying, then you won't mind, you know, proving that. Um, again, competition tends to mitigate that. And businesses that, that truly have recovered, and as we put more and more quarters on the books of, of good performance, I think a lot of that will start to fade into the background. Um, there are still plenty of companies out there on their third round of PPP. Um, you know, another very prevalent change in, in terms and, and, and deal points has been escrows directly uh, related to these PPP loans. Um, because, you know, an owner uh, wants to keep that money and a buyer is not going to pay for something that is not forgiven. And, um, you know, the attorneys uh, ha- have come up with, you know, a great way to protect both parties and, and to bridge the gap that, ser- that exists around PPP loans. Uh, and then, you know, maybe another point, and this has very, been very prevalent for the last five years, but, um, you know, the use of what's called reps and warranty insurance um, in the actual, you know, sale um, contract documents. Um, protecting, you know, a, a buyer of regarding the warranty that you're giving on the business that you're selling. There are, there's an insurance product now that allows for protection uh, for the buyer and, and for the seller even, um, should some of those warranties prove defective. In the old days, what would happen is a seller had to escrow money from their sale proceeds and lock that money up into you know, a large escrow that would be around for 12 to 18 months. And I'm not saying that those escrows don't exist. I'm, what I'm saying is more and more often reps and warranty insurance is allowing those escrows to fall away or to become a much less um, dollar amount than they would have been otherwise. This 
type of insurance has always been available for very large transactions. Um, and what I've noticed year in and year out, it has steadily come down to smaller and smaller size transactions. So right now, if we're working with a uh, 5 million or greater EBITDA size business, it's certainly something that we're going to evaluate for our seller clients. And I think a lot of our buyer clients are going to expect it. So in our next Academy session. Don's going to be speaking for two hours. We're actually going to have a private equity person involved in that conversation and talk about, again, this kind of, uh, you know, this boots on the ground piece. What are people actually doing? And the conversation that we just had today is going to be expanded into a whole bunch of different areas that the students in our class are going to be able to take away, I think, some really valuable information. But we're getting ready to wrap up here. And what kind of parting words do you have for the audience at large? I would encourage you know business owners that um, are serious about their exits to you know dive in and complete their planning, and you know with the goal, um, you know no need to go through the checklist. But I use the vision of taking a lifestyle business and converting it into a professionally managed business. Accelerate those goals because this is a great year to really conduct that actual M&A exit. And by the way, we, we will help people with ESOP exits and management buyouts. The goal is to affect the exit that our clients desire. But this is a, a great year economically speaking, all the demand in the world, high valuations. And we alluded to at the start of our conversation, the beginnings of a rising interest rate environment that, that I believe, not this year, but ultimately will affect the M&A markets and potential valuations. Why wait for that to occur? Well, Don, so Don Bravaldo of Bravaldo Capital Advisors, easy to find on the web. And you can actually uh, look at them through our website. So theowneracademy.com on our advisors page, Don and his company are featured there. But today we've been talking about M&A and achieving that elite exit, maximizing value on your terms and doing it without regret. So please give us a call at the Business Owner Transition Academy, and we would love to put you into one of our upcoming classes. We've got one starting in April, and then we'll be doing another one in the summertime and then another one in the fall. Those classes are for you, those of you in the Atlanta area. You can do those in person. If you are not in the Atlanta area, we conduct these classes fully remote as well. So we have not only in-person sessions, but we also have a online educational platform with custom assessments that have to do with valuation and also with value drivers in your business. And then we apply those custom assessments to the actual in-person course or remote course sessions. So we look forward to having you in the Academy. If you're ready to start moving forward and don't need the Academy and want to go into more of a consulting environment, we can absolutely do that for you as well. So once again, thanks for listening. TheOwnerAcademy.com is where you can get me. Mike Flemmon with TheOwnerAcademy.com.